Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The night of January 19, 1938, 22-year-old Virginia Hill sat in a bar in Birmingham, Alabama, sipping whiskey. She had her eyes on a new mark, a football player at the University of Alabama, Aussie Griffin, the heir to a large lumber company fortune. Virginia introduced herself. That night, the couple made love in the back seat of Aussie's car. The next day, they were married. When Virginia was a little girl, she'd vowed never to fall in love. Everywhere she looked, she saw men using women for gratification, and she wanted to even the playing field. Throughout her life, she targeted men to serve as pawns in her master plan for fame, fortune, and power. Virginia planned to squeeze as much money as she could from Aussie. She would need that money to win back her influence with the mafia and ascend to her rightful position as queen of the mob. It was a precarious title, one that surrounded her with violence, bloodshed, and danger. But for Virginia Hill, danger was what made life worth living. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we're continuing our discussion of Virginia Hill, the most powerful woman in the history of the mob. Last week, we followed Virginia as she entered the world of organized crime in the 1930s. This week, we'll learn how she became a national celebrity and how her reckless behavior brought about her untimely death. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. In 1938, Virginia Hill's influence in the mob was waning. She'd ruined her mission to spy on New York mobster Joey Adonis by sleeping with his arch enemy, Bugsy Siegel. Now, she was in trouble with the mob outfits in both New York and Chicago. If she wanted to make money, she'd have to find another way. Enter lumber company heir, Ossie Griffin. In May of 1938, Virginia moved home to Marietta, Georgia, to be closer to her new husband. He stayed in Tuscaloosa, continuing his junior year at the University of Alabama. Virginia said Georgia was the only place she felt comfortable. There was no one to be wary of. It seems at the age of 22, her exciting lifestyle was already wearing her down. After two months in Marietta, Virginia was recharged. She was already through with her new husband. It turns out the college junior couldn't yet access his family's large fortune. 
he couldn't even pay the $100 fee to annul their six-month marriage. His father had to foot the bill. Newly single, Virginia craved adventure. She heard there was money to be made in the drug trade and that the men who ran narcotics out of South America had no fear of the mafia. Virginia could use powerful friends like these, and she needed a new source of income, so in July of 1938, she packed her bags for Mexico. Virginia was a huge hit south of the border. For a month, she guzzled tequila and danced barefoot with the most powerful men in Mexico. She convinced her old friends in the Chicago mob to back her, and soon she was delivering bribes to politicians and drug lords on their behalf. This ensured safe passage north for millions of dollars in smuggled narcotics. In August 1938, still buzzing from a month in Mexico, Virginia moved to Los Angeles. The mob was finally warming back up to her after her misstep with Bugsy. For the next several years, she traveled between Chicago, New York, and Mexico, using LA as her base of operations. When she was home in LA, she would frequent Mexican nightclubs making connections for her trips down south. In the fall of 1938, Virginia was having dinner at the Serape Club in Los Angeles. She invited a rumba dancer named Carlos Valdez to join her for a drink after the show. Things heated up quickly with Carlos. Once his contract at the Serape was over, he moved in with Virginia for two weeks, becoming her lover. In November 1938, he moved back to Mexico, Virginia kept seeing him regularly whenever she traveled in his direction. On December 7, 1938, Virginia got a call from Joey Epstein, her former mentor and the accountant for the Capone Crime Syndicate in Chicago. Epstein wanted Virginia to fly to Chicago and bring some stolen jewelry back to Los Angeles. The Chicago and New York mob outfits had been competing to build influence in LA for years. Virginia accepted the assignment and invited Carlos to tag along. The two left from Mexico, but they were stopped almost immediately during a routine luggage inspection after crossing the border in Texas. Customs agents became suspicious of Valdez because of his broken English and detained him and Virginia for questioning. When they discovered Carlos had lived with Virginia the previous fall, they accused her of harboring an illegal alien. They denied Carlos access to the country on grounds of moral turpitude. Virginia laughed at the charges, saying she didn't know you had to prove your virginity to get into America. Carlos was held back in Mexico, and Virginia flew on to Chicago without him. The incident brought Virginia to the attention of the federal authorities for the first time. But it wasn't the first time she'd caught the public's attention. The notorious mob queen's romp with her Mexican beau was picked up by newspapers across the country. Back in Los Angeles, Virginia quickly moved on from Carlos. She latched on to the free publicity and kept making a name for herself among the Hollywood elite. She was often seen around town with Errol Flynn, a leading man with a notorious temper. When they got into an argument at the Brown Derby restaurant, Virginia threw a drink in his face and the entire dining room applauded. This incident made newspapers too. Soon Virginia was recognizable to authorities and under investigation by the FBI. Before these episodes, she'd been well-known in crime circles, but law officials had never even heard of her. Now her anonymity was compromised. 
But that may have been part of a larger plan. There was a rumor swirling around the underworld that, despite her continued work for the Chicago mob, Virginia first moved to LA on orders from the rival New York mafia, who backed her financially while she worked her way into the city's high society. This rumor can't be confirmed, but it's known that sometime in 1939, once Virginia was established as a Hollywood socialite, she received new orders from New York. She was to spy on her old fling, mobster Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy had been ordered out of New York years earlier, after his one-night stand with Virginia embarrassed high-ranking mafia officer Joey Adonis. Out West, Bugsy flourished. He lived in a 35-bedroom mansion in Beverly Hills and gained a strong hold over the Racewire bookmaking racket. In the 40s, the Racewire sent information about horse racing odds, results, and payouts across the country by telegraph wire. There was a limit, however, to the amount of money you could legally bet through the Racewire. That's where the mob came in. They had bookies subscribe to the race wire and use the information to take bets too large to be placed legally. Joey Epstein had coordinated this for years in Chicago, but in Los Angeles, it was Bugsy scene. In addition to bookmaking, Bugsy grew close to celebrities, many of whom used drugs. He used these connections to take over the A-list narcotics trade. Bugsy's interest in Hollywood didn't stop there. He strong-armed studio executives to take control of the Extras Union, the Projectionist Guild, and the Teamsters. Before long, the New York mob regretted sending Bugsy to L.A. He was supposed to be their proxy, but he'd gone into business for himself. What's worse, he kept his business dealings secret. Even if they seized his operations, they'd have no idea how they were run. Sources say Virginia was thrilled to be working for the New York family in a new capacity— and even more excited by the prospect of sleeping with Bugsy again. She often said their night in New York was the best sex she ever had. In the spring of 1939, Virginia caught wind of a party Bugsy was attending at the home of a mutual friend, actor George Raft. Virginia made an appearance and worked her magic on Bugsy. As guests left for the evening, the couple stayed behind taking over Raft's guest bedroom for a passionate weekend. After that, Raft loaned his guest bedroom to Bugsy and Virginia two weekends a month. Virginia always brought her own satin sheets and a maid. With their romance rekindled, it wasn't long before the criminal duo started working together professionally. Bugsy and Virginia fixed boxing matches, set up sucker bets, and worked over celebrity friends at the racetrack. Virginia was doing so well, Bugsy had no idea she was spying on him. New York was pleased Virginia had gotten so close to Bugsy, but they were unsure of her loyalty. To keep her in line, the mafia's West Coast overseer, Jack Dragna, gave Virginia a warning. Don't get too close. His message was clear. If Virginia slipped up again, it would cost her her life. In January 1940, Virginia took another trip to Mexico. It was on this trip that she bumped into her old friend, the rumba dancer, Carlos Valdez. When Virginia found him, he was running a nightclub with his brother instead of dancing, which was his passion. Carlos was dying to get back into America. To help her friend and lover, Virginia did the only thing that would allow him citizenship. She married him. 
On January 20th, 1940, Virginia embarked upon her third marriage, becoming Mrs. Miguelito Carlos Gonzalez Valdez. Virginia didn't figure her new husband would get in the way of her relationship with Bugsy. He was married too, after all, even though his wife and children still lived in New York. Virginia, however, soon regretted marrying Carlos. Instead of being thankful, he ordered her to stop working and have his children. That wasn't what Virginia signed up for. To keep Carlos distracted, she booked performance contracts for him all over the country, as far away from L.A. as possible. Six months later, in the summer of 1940, the Chicago mob invested in a New York nightclub called The Hurricane, which they planned to use as a money laundering front. Virginia was selected to front it. Fronting the nightclub was a major step up in the mob hierarchy, but it also elevated Virginia in the eyes of the FBI. Until this point, she had simply been a known criminal associate. Now she was upgraded to suspected racketeer and placed under surveillance. Even worse, Carlos was still bothering her to settle down and have children, and Virginia needed to get rid of him for good. She booked him as the permanent star of her New York nightclub. Two days after it opened, she handed him a contract, which he signed without reading. The document was actually not a performance contract, but ironclad divorce papers. As Carlos went on stage, Virginia got on a plane to L.A. She would never see her third husband again. Now she was free to spend all her time with Bugsy in Los Angeles. Up next, we'll see how Virginia and Bugsy hit their stride and how it all came crashing down. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. Throughout 1940, Virginia and Bugsy made headlines in an era that idolized mobsters. They took over several casinos in Mexico and bought a couple of mansions, one in L.A. and one in Miami, where they were planning to move in on the New York Mafia's drug routes. The Miami mansion was a spot for weekend getaways. Soon, however, it had attracted unwanted attention. Virginia found out a hit contract had been put out for her. Her schemes with Bugsy were apparently cutting into the wrong person's profits. Or maybe word had gotten out about her secret diary, the record of transactions she'd been keeping since her days with Joey Adonis. That diary could incriminate the most powerful gangsters in New York, Chicago, and LA. Virginia was one of the only people to work with all three outfits, and she kept records of everything. After the death threat, Virginia installed alarms and floodlights on her Miami property and traveled with a bodyguard at all times. Before long, papers ran headlines like Bugsy's girl trapped in Miami Beach Fortress and Bugsy's baby buys bunker. The FBI took notice of the headlines. To learn more about her role with the mob, they bugged her phones and tailed her 24 hours a day. No harm came to Virginia in Miami though. In a bizarre twist, the FBI most likely scared off any assassins. 
The damage to Miami operations, however, had been severe. The New York mob ordered Virginia out of Florida, furious she had pointed the feds in their direction. To atone, they pressed Virginia for more details on Bugsy's L.A. wire racing racket. Virginia had done an excellent job cozying up to Bugsy, but New York was not satisfied with the level of intel she'd provided. They wanted enough detailed information to force his bookmaking operations out of his hands for good. Towards the end of 1940, Bugsy was arrested for the murder of Harry Big Greeny Greenberg. While he was stuck behind bars, Virginia got to work uncovering details of his operation. She slipped everything she found to New York. When Bugsy was released that December, Virginia decided she was through with money laundering and transporting stolen goods. She devoted herself exclusively to spying on and scamming her baby blue eyes, Bugsy. Bugsy still had no idea his secrets had leaked, and he truly thought Virginia loved him. Did Virginia love Bugsy? We'll never know for sure. On one hand, she betrayed him and sold out the most private details of his empire. On the other hand, life with him was thrilling. More than that, she didn't have to change who she was to be with him. Virginia's three ex-husbands never even knew she was a criminal. She had used them for money and sex and then broken things off before they got too close. Bugsy, by contrast, knew all about her life in the mob, and he himself was one of the greatest, most charming gangsters of his time. Virginia said she was uncontrollably attracted to him, but also scared stiff. Despite the infatuation, she cheated on Bugsy all the time. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. A study from the American Psychological Association sheds light on this, stating that, quote, cheaters find forbidden experiences attractive and alluring. Until they face real repercussions for their actions, the behavior will almost always continue, end quote. Repercussions for Virginia would have been brutal. Even though Bugsy was cheating too, he was an incredibly jealous lover. He threatened to kill any man he caught with Virginia. That's according to their mutual friend, George Raft, who had recently started sleeping with Virginia himself. Virginia said Raft would climb into bed with her, doing an impression of Bugsy that had her in stitches. Raft said that, quote, Screwing was all the more fun, knowing at any second Benny could burst through the door and kill them both, end quote. While Bugsy and Virginia were busy cheating the mob and each other, the crime underworld was evolving. By 1942, New York recognized a new boss, Frank Costello. In Chicago, Al Capone passed operations on to Charlie Fischetti. The old bosses and their old feud faded as both cities' outfits looked for ways to make money together nationwide. Mobsters met regularly in Los Angeles in the 40s, and though he was always invited to the meetings, Bugsy never attended. This was a major slight to the New York mob, which was already looking to replace him. Bugsy had been blocking New York's effort for a unified wire service with Chicago, as well as meddling in the movie unions in L.A., as punishment, the higher-ups seized his rackets, the unions, the wire service, everything. He was completely pushed out of L.A. 
Virginia came up at these meetings, too. She'd done well tailing Bugsy, but she was running too many scams with him. What's more, she was suspected of cheating money from both Chicago and New York. When fencing stolen goods, she claimed shipments were lost. When she was collecting bets, she said bookies refused to pay her. The mob suspected she was pocketing tens of thousands of dollars at their expense. Everyone agreed Virginia was becoming a loose cannon. Virginia's mentor, Joey Epstein, told her to move back to Chicago. She refused, saying, quote, I work where I want, when I want, end quote. Since she was 17, she'd followed Epstein's orders. Now she called his bluff. He backed down and kept sending her cash. Shortly after, the New York mob's West Coast boss, Jack Dragna, ordered Virginia's murder. Epstein convinced him to back off, saving Virginia's life. She never knew how close she'd come to death, and she continued treading a very thin line. By May 1944, 28-year-old Virginia was surrounded by violence. Bugsy was angry he'd lost his hold over L.A. He looked for new rackets, while Virginia still reported his every move back to the New York mob. The couple fought constantly, and viciously. They both wore heavy makeup in public to cover their bruises. For years now, Virginia had sought out violent relationships. Author Michael Formica has a theory as to why. When she was a little girl, Virginia was frequently attacked by her father. Like many abused children, this caused her to believe she was unlovable. Soon, she was craving power to validate her self-worth. Years later, by taking Bugsy's abuse, Virginia claimed power by not submitting to domination. She fought back. Over time, the sensations of passion and violence became confused in Virginia's mind, and she accepted physical pain as a substitute for romance. Soon, however, Virginia discovered her threshold for pain. She started growing tired of Bugsy, who talked more and more about moving to Las Vegas, after being muscled out of New York, Chicago, and L.A., it was one of the only places he had left. Bugsy and Virginia's casinos in Mexico had been successful, and now he wanted to try his luck in Vegas. He kept living with Virginia in California, but his trips out to Nevada became more and more frequent. Bugsy found wealth in Las Vegas, but along the way, he developed a gambling addiction. He made millions and lost them just as quickly and Virginia had to loan him cash to get by. In 1944, her diary shows loans to Baby Blue as high as $26,000, nearly $400,000 today. Virginia had been with Bugsy for five years, and she wanted out. She told Bugsy she was tired of his temper, his debt, and his wife, Esta, who he still refused to divorce. The two began to brawl, as usual. Virginia threw the key to their Beverly Hills home in the dirt and tried to drive away. Bugsy snatched her out of her convertible and dragged her inside. To hurt his pride, Virginia called Bugsy a terrible lover. Enraged, he beat Virginia half to death, took her upstairs, and raped her. He then drove away to gamble at a friend's house as if nothing had happened. Virginia vowed revenge. A few weeks later, Bugsy was gambling with friends. Virginia told the police where he was and got him arrested for bookmaking. 
The case was eventually escalated to the Superior Court and picked up by the newspapers. Bugsy got off with a fine, but his reputation was shot. It was a small crime, and it made him look like a punk. Waiting for another slip-up, the L.A. police followed him every time he left the house. Cornered, Bugsy asked Virginia to move to Vegas with him. She laughed in his face. Instead, she flew to New York and into the arms of his old rival, Joey Adonis. This was a public, calculated attack against the one thing Bugsy had left, his manhood. Bugsy started spending nearly all of his time in Vegas, while Virginia partied in New York with Adonis. The papers reported the affair, highlighting the fact that Virginia and Bugsy were on the outs. In the spring of 1945, refusing to settle down, Virginia flew to LA for a weekend romp with her friend, George Raft. The two were making love when Bugsy came to the door, nearly catching them in the act. Bugsy begged Virginia to come back. He promised to leave his wife, Esta, if Virginia would come to Las Vegas. That was apparently enough for Virginia. The couple patched things up and jumped into Raft's bed, which was probably still warm. The dust had cleared. They were back together. In 1945, Las Vegas had few hotels or casinos. It was a cowboy town in the middle of nowhere. But Bugsy and Virginia saw promise. World War II had just ended, and Americans wanted to celebrate in style. Bugsy envisioned a playground of vice, a quick getaway offering lavish comforts, legal gambling, and prostitution. With Virginia by his side, Bugsy labored away, overseeing construction of their first luxury casino. It was called the Flamingo, and it spared no expense. On December 26, 1946, with a magnificent gala planned, it opened for business. That same night, a rare desert thunderstorm gave way to flash floods. A plane of movie stars had been scheduled to land at the casino, but it was grounded in LA. Roads were closed. Turnout for the holiday extravaganza was abysmal. The whole thing was a disaster. Ceilings leaked, wiring was defective, hotel rooms weren't even ready. The mob was enraged. Mob outfits in Miami and Kansas City had backed the casino, and Bugsy went $5 million over their budget. Today, that figure would be over $65 million. Some of that overspending can be attributed to poor planning, but a lot of it was plain old-fashioned theft. According to Virginia's records, Bugsy skimmed over $2 million from the casino, a sum equal to $26 million today. Virginia stored it for him in a variety of Swiss bank accounts. Even though she was helping Bugsy skim, Virginia never moved to Vegas. She said she hated the hot hillbilly town. She was allergic to cactus, and she broke out in hives on her few visits. She was also probably avoiding Bugsy, who had become manic. According to contractors, he was obsessive, constantly changing the decor. He would order a change and then overprice it. A $20,000 wall removal, for instance, was quoted as a $30,000 expense. Bugsy pocketed the extra $10,000 and Virginia deposited it in their Swiss bank accounts. This is how the Flamingo went millions over budget. In the first few weeks, the Flamingo kept losing money. 
Dealers were reportedly stealing from the tables after being bribed by Chicago mobsters who were opening a competing casino across the street. The losses were devastating for Bugsy. He had to close the casino on February 6, 1947, driving away the few guests and patrons they had left. Construction continued as Bugsy pumped in even more money to repair the leaky ceilings and finish furnishing the rooms. Over these few weeks, Bugsy was more violent than ever. And out in L.A., Virginia was growing paranoid and manic as well. One evening at a dinner party, Virginia pulled a gun on New York mobster Alan Smiley. She was paranoid that Smiley was spying on her. For the record, he actually was, but he denied it, gaslighting Virginia in front of her dinner guests. As Virginia was becoming unglued, Bugsy's Flamingo Casino reopened on March 1st, 1947. It had new dealers, better performance acts, and 105 newly furnished hotel rooms. It actually started to make money. For the mafia, though, it was too little too late. Two months after the Flamingo's reopening, a meeting of the entire mafia organization was called in Cuba. As usual, Bugsy was a no-show. This final insult was unacceptable. The mafia ordered his execution. The gangsters then decided what to do with Virginia. She had absorbed Bugsy's worst qualities, and she was drawing attention to herself. Most of the men didn't care either way, but some definitely wanted her dead. She surely would have been killed if not for her old fling, Joey Adonis. He laid down his marker on her behalf, making himself personally accountable for her actions. This was a sentimental move, and Adonis would live to regret it. On June 8, 1947, Virginia received a call from her old mentor, Joey Epstein. He told her to get to Chicago. There, she would receive further instructions. Fearing for her life, Virginia said goodbye to Bugsy, who was staying in her apartment in L.A. It was the last time they would ever speak. Coming up, we'll explore the last few years of Virginia Hill's tumultuous life. Now, back to the story. On June 16, 1947, Virginia boarded a plane from Chicago to France. She'd been ordered to leave the country while the mafia took care of her lover, Bugsy Siegel. Virginia called up Bugsy, who was staying in her L.A. apartment, and told him she was going to France to buy wine. He suspected nothing. Four days later, Bugsy was shot through the windows of Virginia's apartment. He died instantly. By the next month, Virginia had spiraled out of control. She was nearly always drunk, and she was often thrown out of restaurants for assaulting guests and screaming about the mob. After losing Bugsy, she was afraid she would be next. To protect herself, she confessed to Joey Epstein that she was keeping a diary of mob secrets, but refused to turn it over. Epstein persuaded her to fly back to Chicago. For the next two years, he continued giving her money for support, as he always had. In January of 1950, Virginia went on a series of benders in Sun Valley, Idaho, on Epstein's dime. Here, she met a tall, dark Austrian ski instructor by the name of Hans Hauser. She was attracted to him immediately. Virginia took up skiing for the first time in her life. She reserved lessons for days at a time, 
keeping Hans all to herself. They only used some of that time to ski. Mostly, they dined and danced all over Sun Valley. To be safe, Virginia ran a background check on Hans. She found out he emigrated from Austria during World War II and was not a U.S. citizen, which didn't concern her at all. In March 1950, the two were married. After the wedding, Virginia supported Hans. No one knows how much money she had hoarded over the years. She had regular support payments coming from Joey Epstein, she'd skimmed from crime outfits in Chicago, New York, and Mexico, and she may still have had access to Bugsy's old Swiss bank accounts. She and Hans lived very comfortably and very publicly. Before long, it made headlines that the queen of the mob had taken another husband. The FBI immediately investigated Hans, hoping they could use him to incriminate Virginia. They were right. According to the Immigration and Naturalization Service, there were special conditions regarding Hans's citizenship. As a suspected Nazi sympathizer, he could only remain in the U.S. if he had a job. Since he had quit his job when Virginia started supporting him, the INS began the process of his deportation. Virginia contacted old mob associates for help, but they refused, fearing further entanglement with the FBI. Incensed, Virginia turned to the press. She said the mob had turned its back on her. She vowed revenge. In a risky move, Virginia revealed to reporters that she kept a secret diary full of mob transactions. If it would change the government's mind, she would turn over her records, incriminating anyone she could to win her husband's citizenship. Virginia's stunt failed. The FBI offered no deal. Instead, the Senate committee subpoenaed Virginia for publicly admitting her criminal dealings with the mafia. Unbeknownst to Virginia, a massive mafia investigation had been underway for some time, spearheaded by Senator Estes Kefauver. Kefauver made it a personal crusade to unveil the mafia's corruption of American business. Virginia Hill, with her detailed records dating back to 1935, was of particular interest to him, to say the least. The televised hearings were causing a national fervor. To prepare for the hearings, Virginia and Hans rented a cottage in Bar Harbor, Maine, in June 1950. They lived in seclusion, cut off from the press and Virginia's old mob contacts. That September, Virginia was ordered to appear before the committee in Chicago. She requested a delay, saying it was difficult for her to travel. Kefauver demanded an explanation, but he was unprepared for Virginia's answer. She was pregnant. 34-year-old Virginia was known as a gangster's mall, a violent criminal whose debaucherous lifestyle had been glamorized by newspapers and demonized by law enforcement. It was difficult for the public to believe that this same woman could now be a mother. The committee agreed to forego the initial questioning, because of the stress it would cause Virginia and her baby. On November 20th, 1950, Virginia gave birth to a healthy son named Peter Hauser. As Virginia embraced motherhood, Kefauver tore into the mob. Joey Adonis fled the country to avoid a prison sentence. Joey Epp went into hiding. America eagerly awaited Virginia's testimony. For years, she'd appeared in papers as the mob queen. Now, in 1951, she would appear on television sets across the country. 
to tell Kefauver everything she knew about the world of organized crime. On March 16, 1951, 34-year-old Virginia Hill arrived at New York's Foley Courthouse to answer questions about her mob connections. Her entrance has been likened to a Hollywood premiere. Reporters crowded the courthouse steps as she emerged from a limousine in a black suit, silk gloves, and a blue mink stole. Photographers crowded around the star witness, sticking cameras in her face. As journalists barraged her with questions, Virginia began swinging. She said she was being attacked and threw punches at any reporter in her way. Once inside, she was blinded by flashbulbs. It seems the photographers were trying to blind Virginia to get even with her for attacking them. Kefauver was unsympathetic and allowed the photos to continue. In front of the committee on national television, Virginia brazenly lied about her income, her relationships, and her criminal activities. She claimed her money came from a benefactor she couldn't name. She was protecting Joey Epstein and other associates she still trusted. Virginia left the courthouse that day smiling. She'd kept the location of her diary a secret, and she had an answer for every tough question they asked her. She climbed into her limousine thinking she was off the hook, but she was wrong. As they'd done with Al Capone, the U.S. Treasury wanted to take Virginia down for income tax evasion. By lying about her income under oath, she'd incriminated herself. It was only a matter of time before a warrant would be issued for her arrest. The FBI tailed Virginia 24-7 and bugged her new house in Spokane, Washington. To protect her husband, Hans, and son, Peter, Virginia left them behind and flew around the country, begging old friends for money to flee the United States. No one would help her. The mob had written Virginia off after Bugsy's execution. She was part of the old guard, and it hadn't helped anything when she threatened to reveal her diary in front of the press. Now, nobody wanted anything to do with her. There was one person, though, who never abandoned her. Her first connection to organized crime, Joey Epstein. He came out of hiding in San Francisco to give her $10,000, the equivalent of over $100,000 today. But this gift, he told her, would be his last. Virginia now had enough money to get her family out of the country. Their plan was to travel to Chile and become citizens there. After a time, they would return to the U.S. so Hans could reapply for citizenship as a Chilean. It seemed far-fetched, but Virginia nearly got away with it. Once her son and husband were out of the country, Virginia was apprehended July 6, 1951, in Denver, Colorado. She took a swing at a police officer, mistaking him for a reporter. When she was in cuffs, the IRS informed her she owed $161,000 in back taxes, worth over $2 million today. A lien was placed on her home and her possessions were auctioned off. The sale of her assets yielded $41,000. There was no way Virginia could pay the remaining $120,000. After using her last gift from Epstein to get her family out of the country, she was broke. She vowed she would never go to prison and concocted another crazy scheme to flee the country. In September 1951, Virginia fled Spokane with little more than the clothes on her back. She applied for an Austrian passport under her full married name, Oni Virginia Hauser, 
and traveled to Texas while she waited. The FBI watched her every move. There was only one reason they let her get as far as Texas. She had arranged a meeting with Joey Epstein, who was still in hiding after the Kefauver investigation. The FBI believed they could arrest both criminals together if they waited for them to meet. But Virginia was still one smart dame. She'd invited Epstein to Houston, and the FBI began planning a raid. What the feds didn't know was that Virginia's old Mexican contact, Major Luis Amezcua, would also be at the meeting. Amezcua had crossed into the U.S. under diplomatic immunity. This prohibited American authorities from taking any action against him or his companions. As long as Epstein and Virginia were with Amezcua, they couldn't be arrested. They crossed the border together, parting ways in Mexico City. Epstein didn't return to America for seven years. The IRS continued to file charges against Virginia. She was even listed as number three on the FBI's most wanted list. When the first two criminals on the list were arrested, she slipped to the number one spot for a few weeks. Over the next few years, Virginia and her family surfaced all over the world, first in Hong Kong, then France, Italy, and Switzerland. It was unclear, as always, where Virginia's money came from, but she certainly had a lot of it. These later years were difficult for Virginia. She was often drunk, slurring her words whenever in public. She alienated herself from Hans, accusing him of cheating. It's likely that he never did and that Virginia was growing paranoid. According to several accounts, during the late 50s and 60s, Virginia attempted suicide several times by overdosing on pain pills. Many believe she was seeking attention, but after decades of fear and alienation, hopping across the world to avoid prosecution, she may have felt there was no hope left for her. Her life had fallen out of her control. For whatever reason, in 1966, at the age of 49, Virginia decided she wanted to return to the United States, alone, without her son or husband. She reached out to her mob contacts one last time, starting with her old fling, Joey Adonis. Virginia offered Adonis her diary. If Adonis could work his contacts and convince the IRS to forgive her debt, she'd turn over all her records to him, ensuring they'd never fall into the FBI's hands. He said there was nothing he could do. Virginia then turned on Adonis. If she couldn't bribe him, she could blackmail him. She threatened to reveal the contents of her diary to the press unless he sent her regular payments of $3,000. Crime psychologist Dr. Lorraine Blakeman claims Virginia was desperate and depressed. Quote, Virginia was reaching out the only way she knew how. She wanted attention, not money. She probably had it stockpiled somewhere. She wanted the mafia, the government, whoever, to take notice again. She believed as long as she had the evidence to destroy them, she could force their attention and respect, end quote. Adonis sent Virginia nearly $20,000, but she still hounded him for more. Though he'd saved Virginia's life a decade before, Adonis was coming to regret it. Soon, he would correct the mistake. Dr. Blakeman has also ruminated on Virginia's final days, saying that, quote, she was desperate to recapture her glorious past. She'd convinced herself that she held an even greater position with the mob than she once had, and with that, 
convinced herself that she could control these men. I think Hill herself was dangerous, not because she had any power, but because she was a loose cannon, end quote. Whatever her mental state, Virginia was convinced she had Adonis on the run. She tracked him down at a hotel in Naples. On March 20th, 1966, Virginia called and tried to extort another $20,000 from him. Her threats were vague, but she was angry. Adonis hung up. Two days later, Virginia surprised him at his hotel. According to Adonis, they spent the day together and made love one last time. The next morning, over breakfast, he gave her $10,000 in cash, and she promised never to contact him again. After that, she boarded a train to Salzburg. He claims that's the last time he ever saw her. The next day, March 24, 1966, two hikers discovered Virginia's body near a brook in Koppel, Austria. A simple note was found with the body, saying Virginia was fed up and tired of living. She was 49 years old. A lethal amount of poison was discovered in her system. The coroner declared Virginia's death a suicide. For 25 years, the ruling went uncontested. Then, in the early 1990s, an anonymous party turned up a second coroner's report. The report indicated lateral bruises around Virginia's neck, as if she'd been strangled. The initial autopsy report published decades earlier failed to note these bruises, claiming there had been no signs of a struggle. This was obviously a lie. Considering the bruises and the timing of her meeting with Adonis, it's likely Virginia was drugged and either strangled or poisoned, probably by Adonis or one of his associates. The type of poison found in her body was never noted, but Adonis was known to commit contract murders using a sleeping pill called nitrazepam. This pill was widely available across Europe. Once she was drugged, Virginia's unconscious body could easily have been dumped in Koppel, far away from her last known sighting in Italy. Today, this is the widely accepted theory of Virginia's final hours. Three days before she died, Joey Epstein got a letter from Virginia and a key to a safety deposit box. The morning her body was found, Epstein opened the box. Inside was Virginia's diary and a note that read, in case of emergency or my death. Before he died in 1976, Epstein gave the diary to an anonymous friend, only loosely associated with the mob. That friend still holds the diary today and has released some of its contents for public record. Virginia Hill lived for pleasure, but was often in pain. She used men for power, but was used by them in worse ways. She kept the vow she made as a little girl and was loyal to no one. It left her alone and alienated. Today, her legacy as the most powerful woman in the mafia is unchallenged. She is the undisputed queen of the mob. Virginia's life can best be summed up by Jack Pignatore, a friend of hers from Chicago. Quote, Hill ran hot and cold, depending on her mood. She had a sense of right and wrong. And more importantly, she had a sense of who she was. She was fire. She was ice. She was one tough cookie and one hell of a great lady. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to support the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden, Aidan Connolly, and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Freddie Beckley and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.